you know, when we, when American Christians talk about evangelism, like you're talking about, um, especially, you know, white people coming to Africa to save people, we are calling them lost or we're calling them unbelievers. We're, we're labeling them from our point of view as to what they are. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Exvangelical Podcast, where being labeled a heretic is a good thing, if it means refusing to conform to toxic, harmful expressions of faith. We address your questions about God, politics, how we got here, and how to move forward. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, spiritual seekers, and activists in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We're your hosts, Melanie and Gary Ellen, and this is Holy Heretics. Today, we are using the power of technology to talk with Rachel Pye Jones all the way in Djibouti, Africa. Rachel is a prolific writer who has written about life at the crossroads of faith and culture for The New York Times, Christianity Today, Runner's World, and more. Her work is influenced by living in the Horn of Africa since 2003, raising third culture kids and adventurous exploration of the natural world. She is the author of Stronger Than Death, How Annalena Tonelli Defied Terror and Tuberculosis in the Horn of Africa, and she's the second-place finisher in Somaliland's inaugural marathon. She also has a new book called Pillars, How Muslim Friends Led Me Closer to Jesus. So welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you guys. Okay, so Rachel... um... Your book sounds pretty fascinating and maybe even a little bit controversial, especially for white evangelicals and even American Christians in general who uh, have kind of been framed by a worldview where Muslims are our enemies. Um, So I'm guessing that a lot of Christians aren't necessarily completely open to hearing about how uh, Muslims helped you get closer to Jesus, but can you tell us a little bit about that and, and what led you to write the book? Yeah, sure. Um, it is a little bit wild, right? To think that Muslims could help a Christian know and love Jesus better. <laughs> and I didn't anticipate that would happen when we moved to the Horn of Africa, but I have experienced that my community, which is predominantly Somali Muslim, they have a real deep, sincere, authentic faith. And so when I come in with my Christian faith and it's at odds with theirs and not at odds with, but different from, um, I had to figure out what I really believe in. Why? When I was in the United States as a Christian, it was pretty easy. Of course, you know, there's, there can be different conversations or different points of tension, but it's kind of, it can be the cultural air that you breathe, especially where I was from. And so while I believed the things about my faith, I didn't have to experience them being challenged on a regular basis by the majority of the people around me. But here, um, you know, when when a Muslim asks me, what do I love about Jesus? I really have to be able to answer that. Um, Mm -hmm. And so conversations would force me to go back into the scriptures, go back into my experience with God, um, and really think about why I believe what I do and why I love what I do. And then I also learned a lot from my Muslim neighbors about how they practice faith and that informed my faith as well. Wow. Yeah. Rachel, when you and I were corresponding about this interview, you said something that really stuck with me. So when I asked you about, you know, what is your new book about? You said it is about the transformation of my Christian 
meaning American evangelical faith, over 18 years in the Horn of Africa. And then you said, I came to Somalia and Djibouti with all the answers about faith and Jesus, and it turned out I had no clue. As my faith rubbed up against Islam, I was surprised to find beauty and goodness there. Eventually, what I learned from my Muslim friends helped me draw closer to Jesus in new ways. So can you talk about what, why you went to Somalia and Djibouti in the first place and what exactly you experienced when you first got there and were really rubbing shoulders with these people of a totally different faith? Yeah, I definitely felt like I had it all figured out in terms of faith. Um, I wasn't really asking questions. I knew what I believed and I knew what was right. And that was it. And so um, my husband and I, in 2003, we moved to Somaliland, which is northern Somalia, where he was a professor of English and physics at a university there. And um, I'll go back a little bit further from that. Actually, we were from Minneapolis. And so Minneapolis has the largest population of Somalis in the United States. And we were living in a high-rise apartment building close to the University of Minnesota campus. And most of our neighbors were Somali. And so we had already determined that we wanted to live abroad. He wanted to teach abroad. I studied linguistics and very interested in languages. And so we figured that someplace international was on our trajectory, but we didn't know where. We wanted to be useful. Um, we wanted to go to a place where we were invited. So not someplace where we would come in and say, hey, we see some problems. We can fix them for you. Mm. But to be invited by someone locally who could um, guide our process culturally, who could tell us what they needed and for which we had actual skills you know, to meet that. So in this apartment building, we met some Somalis who told us about a university in northern Somaliland that was um, in a peaceful village. You know, southern Somalia is still, was still chaotic and violent, um, but this particular village was peaceful and they were looking actively for native English speakers who could teach English and physics and people who would be willing to come live in a place like that. And so when we heard about that opportunity that that was really um, specific to the needs or the skill set that we had, where we were invited to do it by the local leaders, the directors of the university, the mayors of the town, um, and where people said, you know, we'll help you, we'll kind of shepherd you into this culture. We felt like that would be a good fit. Plus, it was kind of adventurous. And um, very much off the beaten track and out <laughs> of our comfort zone, mm. which we knew to really push ourselves to grow, it would happen in a place like that. So my husband had taken a trip ahead of time to meet the people at the university, make sure we could do this. And he came back from that trip and he said, this is way too hard. Somaliland is way too hard for us. Mm. Um, and then he oh, said... Wow. He said, I think we should do it because it's too hard for us. And so anything good that happens wouldn't be because we are so incredible, but because of mercy, mm. because that people would come alongside and help us. So in 2003, we had two, two and a half year old twins and we moved from Minneapolis to this village and just kind of threw ourselves into probably one of the hardest experiences of my life. Um, Everything was different. Everything was different. You know, the language, the clothing, the how to cook. Um, I couldn't even, I couldn't even go to the bathroom without making a mess because it was squatty potties. <laughs> and so yeah, I, just, I wasn't very good at using those. You know, I just couldn't do anything. You know, washing laundry by hand. Um, actually, on the very first day we arrived, 
our daughter fell off the roof. Um, just a, a freak accident. But she, we thought, oh my gosh, this is the first day here. We're going to have to get evacuated right away for medical needs. But she ended up being fine. But it was just really scary. And the reality of what we had done kind of really sank in um, of how helpless we were there. But that helplessness forced us then to really rely on the community. So it was very overwhelming at first, um, but but also really, over, you know, from retrospect or looking backwards, really good for us. Hmm. So it seems like in life, um, if if and when we are physically vulnerable, um, it often leads to sort of a spiritual vulnerability as well and begins to provide maybe a seedbed to, to ask some deep questions about, you know, who you are, what you truly believe, how you're living your life. Did, did your initial experiences over there um, provide that opportunity for you to really wrestle with some deep questions uh, about, about faith, which then led you to be a little bit more open to your Muslim friends in, over there? Is that, mm-hmm. am, I, mm-hmm. am I making too many assumptions or did that kind of come together like that? No, I think that's so true. Um, I remember I had a party at my house one night for another foreigner who was leaving. And so some of the neighborhood women had come and right in the middle of the party when they're dancing and singing, the call to prayer was sounding from a local mosque. So there's five times a day prayer. And every time it's announced from the mosque, you can't, the, the Moisin will sing, it's time to pray. It's time to pray. Um, and so all the women stopped dancing and they went to wash and then to pray, but they abandoned me in the room. And I remember thinking, I, mm. I really want to pray with them. I want to go with them and pray. But that felt, that felt kind of heretical. You know, I'm mm-hmm. from this Christian background. It was just in the, our first months <laughs> there. Can a Christian pray with a Muslim? I don't know. What would they think if I tried? And by the time I had kind of worked out of my mind that I was, I was going to go do this, even though I couldn't even communicate barely with anybody yet, they had come back already and finished praying and started dancing again. But, but that experience, like, it really stuck in my mind of that longing to participate on a spiritual level. And was that okay for a mm. Christian to pray with a Muslim? And I, I hadn't worked it out yet. Um, now I do think it's okay. I have since then prayed the Salat. It's called the Salat with some Muslim friends, not often, but when they invite me and I'll say, they'll pray in Arabic and I'll say, I don't speak Arabic. I speak Somali and French, but not Arabic. And so, you know, I'm not going to pray the same words as you, but I really like the movement. I find a lot of, um, a lot of beauty, a lot of closeness to God when I move my body in prayer, the way that they do with bowing, putting their mm. forehead to the floor, rising up again. And so, you know, I'll be clear with them. that I'm, I'm not a Muslim and I'm, I'm not praying the same words as you, but I really value communicating with God. And, and if they're comfortable with that, then we will pray together. So at that time, I wasn't able to communicate all that and didn't have that own conviction for myself. But, but now I do think that that is a, can be a really beautiful space of connecting spiritually. Mm. What were some of the biggest questions that you had to wrestle with as a result of coming face to face with a, with this other faith and, and wondering, like, am I allowed to do these things? Yeah, well, that was a big one. But also, you know, I had kind of come up being taught that Christianity is obviously the best, <laughs> almost <laughs> competitively. You know, Americans are pretty competitive, <laughs> mm-hmm. even about our religion. And uh, 
So as soon as people will learn about Christianity, they will just want to become a Christian. Um, and it had never really crossed my mind that people were really satisfied with their faith practices, that Muslims mm. were spiritually fed, legitimately spiritually fed by Islam. And so that was something I had to reckon with of um, my friends feel as fed by their faith and as close to God as I do or not, or not, you know, not every Christian or every Muslim has the same level of relationship with God. But, but what does that mean um, in terms of my faith and what does it mean for them? And how can we, how can we have an authentic relationship over spiritual things while we're being respectful of the other person and not forcing or expecting them to change in their conviction? Um, because yeah, I just really love talking about faith and spiritual matters, but I don't want to argue. I don't want to fight about it. So, so that question of um, of how people are being served by their faith and what could I even learn from that mm. um, is something that I've wrestled with a lot. And that the competitive nature comes up a lot between Christianity and Islam. Like we're coming up right now in Christianity, we're in the season of Lent and the month of Ramadan is coming up for Islam, and that's when they fast for 30 days from sunrise until sunset. And so I've read comparisons between Lent and Ramadan, which one is harder, which one is more spiritual. Hmm. Um, instead of just coming to both of these seasons with an attitude of what can we learn from each other about our longing for God so much that we would deprive ourselves of food or drink throughout the day, or how can we even encourage each other in these spiritual practices? Um, yeah, so those were things that in the beginning I just couldn't even hardly articulate my questions about. Mm. Hmm. I want to ask you something a little bit outside of that, um, especially as it relates to uh, evangelism and, you know, maybe even the white person's burden to go over to Africa and, you know, and save all the Muslims. And that's wrapped in this notion of Christian exceptionalism, as you mentioned earlier, that, you know, we have the answers. Our religion is best. In fact, our religion is the only religion. <laughs> um, and so we're going to force that upon you. Um, did those experiences with their true, authentic faith and their relationship with God change the way you even view evangelism and your relationship with them? Um, yeah, I would say that it's. It has. Um, I still find it really important and valuable to talk about faith. Like I said, I love talking about spiritual things and about Jesus. Um, but I've understood now, I've come to understand that that needs to come from the position of really respecting the other person's faith and experience with God. So, you know, when we, when American Christians talk about evangelism, like you're talking about, um, especially, you know, white people coming to Africa to save people, we are calling them lost or we're calling them unbelievers. We're, we're labeling them from our point of view as to what they are. But when I encountered Muslims who find them, who define themselves as believers or who define themselves not lost, but found, you know, it seemed very condescending and unfair to view them from my perspective. So I've learned to change that lens and to um, to view them from their perspective. How do they see themselves? They see themselves as a person who's trying to please God, who's doing these spiritual practices for different reasons. And it's easy to cast a wide um, 
blanket over everyone doing them for the same reasons. That's not true. Muslims are as diverse as Christians are. But but learning to see and really respect that other person's position um, has helped me actually talk about Jesus in really in more authentic ways because I'm not trying to be sneaky. I'm not trying to hide anything. I'm sincerely wondering about their own experience with God so we can I can ask questions, we can explore you know, prayer or fasting or pilgrimage or charity from a place of um, desiring mutual growth. And, and if they want to ask questions about Jesus, I'm happy to talk about that too. And they know that like there's no coercion, you know, it's just a real authentic relationship between people of faith. Hmm. I'm curious because it seems like right now you, you feel like you've found a place of, um, I don't know if contentment is the right word, but just like feeling settled and um, confident, not uh, those, are, none of those are the right words, but just like, you're not in this place of like, oh my gosh, what is happening? I, I don't know how I feel about my faith. You know, it seems like you've found some sort mm-hmm. of equilibrium. So I'm curious, did you go through a phase where you were questioning, is this even real? Like is this like, should I be believing in Christianity anymore or is uh, Islam more true or is there something else that's more true? Um, and if so, mm-hmm. like how you got to this place of equilibrium or, or calm or peace or whatever word might, might describe how you feel now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. I want to think about what word might capture that feeling. Um, I have, I've never, wanted to become a Muslim. Um, I just really love Jesus. And so I keep coming back to that. There was a period of time here with some family and some friends, things that were incredibly painful and traumatic. And I remember thinking as we walked through that as a community and as a family, um, now is the moment when I could potentially chuck it all. I don't need faith. I don't need God. If this is what God is like, you know, when there's this much pain in the world, and he can't solve it. God can't fix it. I'm out. You know, I, I remember mm-hmm. thinking consciously I could do that. But then um, I just keep coming back to Jesus and and all of scripture, but really Jesus and thinking, no, I, I cannot abandon that, especially when there's so much pain mm-hmm. and trauma in the world. I need a foundation and a rock that's stable. So I haven't been tempted to throw away my own faith, but I have been really scared of some of the questions that I've been asking, especially asking them in public, Mm. (laughs) like on a podcast like this (laughs) or in a book, the one that's coming out. Mm. Um, I think I'm not sure how people will hear that. I'm not sure how they'll receive the book. Uh, And so some of those questions about like you asked about evangelism um, or, you know, engaging with Muslims and believing they have an authentic faith. And some of the larger questions about what does that mean, about some of the things we're taught as Christians, about the supremacy of our faith, you know, all those kinds of things are scary. And so, yeah, it's been um, hard to wrestle with them and hard to wrestle with them here in the sense of I can wrestle with them with my Muslim friends, but it's hard to wrestle with them sometimes with Christians. Hmm. Yeah. I can imagine. I mean, because as you said, we've, we have just sort of assumed that we've got we're right. And, and, you know, they, whoever they are, are wrong. Um, Mm -hmm. so what are some of the ways that 
maybe some of the stereotypes you had about Muslims have changed based on your experiences with with that specific community you are living in and with those specific people. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think all of us uh, here in America have been given a list or uh, a set of stereotypes about uh, Muslims. And for the most part, we, we don't see them every day. We don't live in community with them. And so they are somewhere out there doing something that seems scary to us. And yet when you're forced to live alongside your, your fellow human beings, regardless of their race or religion, you, you quickly realize our, our own shared you know, kind of common humanity. Um, has that happened for you? And then what were some of the stereotypes that really began uh, being stripped away because of your close proximity of living with uh, your Muslim friends? Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, what I'm thinking now answers the previous question a little bit more fully as well, in that this is our life. I've lived here for 18 years now. That's essentially all of my adulthood so far. I've raised my kids here. And so my regular normal life is here. And so that also has helped me um, kind of take down some of those stereotypes mm. and and really ask questions because I'm not just coming here for a trip. I'm not even just coming here for a year or two. We've had to really adapt. And so in terms of my own peace and level of contentment and who I am here, has deepened slowly over those years to the, to this point where, um, this is home. You know, it's not, I know it's not my home. My home is not even Minnesota anymore. Like we don't really belong anywhere anymore, but I'm comfortable here at a very deep, even soul level. Mm. Um, but then to speak to what you said about stereotypes. Yeah. That, that's one of the reasons I actually wrote this book because I get so fed up with the stereotype of, you know, a Muslim woman is only oppressed. Everything about her has to do with her face veil Mm -hmm. or they're Mm -hmm. terrorists or, um, I mean, those are like, those are some of the big ones. And so (laughs) there was, um, my kids went to a French school here, a French local school. And there was, it might've been the day of the Charlie Hebdo attacks at the Paris magazine in France. Um, and so that had, they were talking about that at school because there's a lot of French kids at my kid's school. My daughter, my youngest daughter came home and she said, mom, are Muslims trying to kill me? Mm. <laughs> and I said, how would you think that? <laughs> and she was like, I don't know, but that's what some of the other French kids, not that the kids were saying, I don't exactly know where she picked up that idea. But I said to her, who's your teacher? And she said, my teacher is Madame Hebo, a Somali Muslim woman. And I said, Who's the favorite teacher that you've ever had? And she said, Madame Hebo, she's the best teacher. She does origami. She does music. <laughs> she does all this creative stuff with us. Um, and it's true. She was an incredible teacher. And so right in that conversation with her, with my daughter, I saw somehow this lie that Muslims are violent as a, you know, across the board. All Muslims are violent. All, they all want to kill us. And then the truth that they're teachers and they're really good teachers and they're family people and they are our friends and they're investing in us. Even um, I've had people in the U S ask me, how can you live this alone? Don't you think that everyone's trying to kill you? And I feel like after 18 <laughs> years, um, no, <laughs> actually, they're not trying to kill me. You know, it's so those kinds of stereotypes, when you live immersed in this environment, like the person who pumps my gas, the person who, you know, I, 
pay my groceries to the the bus driver, they're all Muslim. And so it really makes you, it's so obvious then that we're all just humans trying to make our way through this broken, beautiful world together. And those stereotypes have, have no room in my daily reality. And so I wanted to, to use the book or even conversations like this to just be open about that, that there is, there's real goodness and beauty. And, um, you know, we've also been, so American Christians right now, especially are talking a lot about welcoming the stranger or loving the neighbor. And what I have realized for my family here, all these years, we are the stranger. We are the neighbor Mm. that needs other people to love us and other people to welcome us. And that has been such a transformational experience. Um, I would like to have everybody do that. You know, everybody put yourself in a position at some point where you have to be welcomed by somebody else that maybe you're even afraid of or where you're the stranger and the neighbor who needs people to love you well. And I mean, it just changes Mm -hmm. your perspective. And so I'm so thankful for the people who have done that for my family, who have been able to reach across, you know, language blunders and cultural faux pas and all the strange things that I do here as an American, um, where I stick out and don't blend in, but they're willing to, to befriend me and befriend my family. And that, that's really huge. Um, and I think even life changing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that answered your question, but that's kind of where I went in my mind. No, it's perfect. Yeah. And I think it leads into my next question because your book is the the subtitle is how your Muslim friends led you closer to Jesus. So I'm curious about some of the ways that you've noticed how they pointed you to Jesus. What what about how they lived their lives or how they welcomed you or or any of the daily things that you did with them, what about that You do you feel pointed you back to Jesus? Mm-hmm. Um, some things that are very obvious here, faith and religion is just part of the daily life. So it's not separate. Like in the United States, there's this call to prayer that comes five times a day from every mosque in the city. And there's a mosque on almost every corner. And so five times a day you're hearing, God is great. God is great. It's time to pray. And so, I mean, that's a pretty obvious mm-hmm. call to spirituality. I remember in Somaliland, my kids asked me early on, what is the man saying? And I had heard of other Christians when that call to prayer would come, they would cover the ears of their children to protect them from sort of this evil voice singing about prayer. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking, I'm, the man is calling us to pray. And so I told my kids, he's saying, God is greater. God is greater. It's time to pray. And so um, that's a real obvious one. Even the language that people use here, there's a lot of Arabic that mixes in with the Somali, things that that mean if God wills or praise God or thanks be to God. It's just kind of always on your tongue, speaking of God. And it's not unusual. It's very culturally appropriate. Um, Specifically about Jesus, Jesus is actually mentioned multiple times in the Quran as being born of a virgin, as having done miracles, as being close to God in paradise and coming back in the last days. And so, you know, recognizing those things that we have in common, of course, we don't have all things in common about Jesus, but 
um, exploring those concepts for, to understand my Muslim friends' understanding of that has been helpful. And then um, they don't believe that he was crucified or rose from the dead. And so when people, you know, challenge me on that, I'll go back and look in the scriptures and see, you know, yeah, I really do believe this. Um, and one thing, actually, I learned this about Jesus. This was really fun for me to, to learn from things I studied in Islam. That So Muslims believe that every person on the planet is born Muslim. Just from birth, we're all Muslim. And so somebody like me who then becomes Christian, if I decide to become a Muslim now at this point in my life, I would not be a convert. I would be a revert because mm. I'm reverting back to how I was originally created. There's no converts officially in Islam. Everybody who becomes a Muslim later in life is considered a revert. And so I thought about this. And then I was thinking about um, how in the beginning, when God made everything, when we made humans, he called us, God called us good, very good. So the original thing about us before sin and brokenness come into the world is that we're good. And then this is a little bit of a roundabout, but it has a point. Um, <laughs> then in John 3, when Jesus is talking with Nicodemus and he says to him, you have to be born again. All of a sudden, I just had these like light bulbs going off all over the place in my head, fireworks in my brain of Jesus is calling Nicodemus to come back to how he was originally created, which was good made in the image of God, come back to that goodness of belonging to God, of being part of this, um, this community of belonging to God and, and believing in that goodness. And then, so that idea of going back to how you were made and the, the way that the concept from Islam of reverting back to the original, you know, how you were made at birth of being a Muslim, it just kind of all came together in my mind. I don't know theologically, what someone would respond to that with, but to me, it really um, it just made those words of Jesus so precious and powerful to me personally to think about living in the goodness in which I was created, mm. living in the image of God, um, that reality that I'm an image bearer, and that the people I encounter are image bearers, all of them. Um, mm. So things like that, I I just feel like I would never have thought about that without understanding that concept from Islam. Mm. Um, even being in a, in a country like this where things like poverty or uh, need and abuse, it's just very rampant. The, the unemployment rate is above 50, even maybe 60%. Oh, wow. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of hurting people, just like there are everywhere, right? But it's a small community, and so you see things pretty clearly. And so encountering the, the real needs of people on the margins, while at the same time being someone who's culturally on the margin, because of, you know, I'm not, I don't belong here. Um, that has really increased my empathy and helped me to see in scripture more of those stories of when Jesus is interacting with people um, who are on the margins, you know, women and the poor and the needy, and then recognizing that that's also me in different ways, but mm. also me mm. uh, has just made, yeah, it has just made Jesus come alive in very amazing ways. Wow. Would you mind if I ask you how um, your experience there, especially with your children, 
has potentially impacted their faith, their view of God. Obviously, they are growing up in a world where um, a plurality of religions is just accepted, mm-hmm. that Christianity wasn't the only game in town. And so how have you seen their mm-hmm. lives and their faith um be changed and even transformed in beautiful ways because of the impact of Islam on their daily life. Hmm. That is interesting. Um, there's been, like they asked me about the call to prayer. I mentioned that. Right. We've had other conversations because you have to over the years. You know, they would see people praying in the street. And one time one of my daughters said to me, Mommy, why, are, why do Muslims take a bath and do a dance when they pray? And the question was just so sweet because she saw them washing. They, they physically wash before they pray and they'll do it in public, just kind of washing certain parts of the body and then they bow. So she saw it as like a moment of kind of celebration, which I found really beautiful. So she asked, why, we, why do they do that and why don't we do that? Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and those kinds of conversations about fasting, um, I'm sure that they have impacted my kids faith in some ways i don't know if they are so my youngest is 15 and the twins are 20 now i don't know if they have fully wrestled with that themselves to think about um things that maybe they've learned or not learned or would like to embrace or not embrace they all three identify as christians at this point although the older two are in university in the united states and they are navigating Christian American culture, which is very different. And that's been a little bit challenging for them. Seems like culture shock. <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> Absolutely. That's, I think that's been the hardest thing for them, especially this, these last few years, you know? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. So they, they've had some, I think it just makes them more open to understand that not everyone is going to think like them and that that's okay. Uh, they can ask questions, they can be curious, but they don't have to convince people of something. Um, yeah, it, it took them a little while even to, I think, recognize how unique that experience has been for them. They, When they were going to university, moving back to the United States, they weren't sure how their experience was any different from a regular American who lived in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had, to, we had to talk about, you know, it was hard even to explain where to start on how their experience was different. But um, yeah, they're navigating it mm-hmm. now. Well, and it seems like you as a parent would have to be much more intentional and um, present in their mm-hmm. spiritual upbringing because it in I feel like in the states it just, Christianity just kind of happens because ev- everybody is either mm-hmm. Christian or knows about Christianity or isn't even nominally Christian. I mean, it's just the default here, and so there it seems like in order for them to know mm-hmm. about Jesus, you have to be much more intentional, which I I could only imagine would then make your faith stronger as well because you're having to then think like, how do I communicate this with my kids in a world where it's not the default anymore? Um, Which I think, yeah, I was kudos to you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. I was talking with a a Somali friend here, Muslim, and she had been in the UK for several years with her family and they moved back here. And she said, it's so hard to be a Muslim here. It was so much easier in the UK where no one else was a Muslim. Mm. And she said that exact thing where Mm. she had to be so much more intentional. And so she acknowledged, she said, for you, Rachel, as a Christian, you must be experiencing the same thing where your faith is so precious and real and vital because 
you're the minority. And mm-hmm. so that was really fun to kind of hear her experience as the same but opposite. Mm-hmm. And that we could, again, connect over that shared experience. But mm-hmm. you're so right that that being the minority makes you, um, you have to be intentional. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think sometimes when your faith is just the default of culture, it it, it doesn't even mean anything anymore. Like because you can't separate mm-hmm. what you believe and how you're supposed to be countercultural with your own culture. And I was I was in Malaysia a couple of years ago, and uh, there was the I heard the call to prayer, and you know Malaysia being a, a predominantly a Muslim country, and I was fascinated and actually convicted by the fact that. Uh, almost everyone that I could see in that little uh, neighborhood stopped to pray and it began to make me see how much their faith was really lived out in very practical, tangible, transformative ways on a daily basis. And it convicted me and and made Mm -hmm. me ask, when have I stopped to pray? When have Mm -hmm. I stopped to fast? When have I carved out time during my day to devote and remember God? And I feel like that because we live in these waters, as you said earlier, where we're all just sort of swimming. Yep, we're all Christians. We're all white. We all love Jesus. And like, but do we? Uh, do we? Do we even look like Him? Are we doing things that are forming us into back into His His own image? Um, and and it just feels like that there is some beautiful practices uh, and beautiful spiritual disciplines within Islam, that if Christians would also mm-hmm. hold dear, we might look different. We might even look different from the culture that we live in. And I, I think that's just a convicting reminder mm-hmm. of this intersectionality as it relates to faith and, and learning and, 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 and taking on and seeing something to like, wow, that's beautiful. I wish we did that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Islam is a really embodied faith. That's mm-hmm. what I've experienced. And at least evangelical Christianity is not. Maybe other branches of Christianity are, which Islam has helped me to discover, like Orthodox or Catholic or different traditions. But but Islam is very much physical, tied to to you know actually bowing in prayer, fasting, going on the pilgrimage is one of the five pillars. Whereas Christianity, of my experience in the evangelical world, is very otherworldly and right. spiritual, and so. Yeah, it's just such a contrast. Yeah. Um, something that I really have appreciated about talking to you today is that instead of going into another culture and then spending time picking it apart and finding what you don't like about it or what you are afraid of about it or, you know, any of the negative things that I feel like potentially Americans are often raised to do um is kind of like see the other as as bad um mm-hmm. i i love how you have just said what can i what can i learn from these people what can i um glean from them how can they influence me in a positive way i mean i just i feel like you see the humanity in people as well as um the beauty behind different ways of practicing faith, um, which is so we, I think we all need to get back to doing that if we ever have, um, because we just are so used to and trained here in America to just see this, the other as bad, the other as scary, the other as the enemy. So I guess that's 
a, a good way to ask you the question that we like to ask everybody, which is from your perspective, being an American who's gone to um, not just another country, but a country that is vastly, vastly different from America and then staying there and being there for 18 years and calling it home. What what gives you hope when you look at the future of faith? What what makes you, your heart sing because you see this this hopeful thing? Hmm. I have a couple of answers to that question. <laughs> Um, the first one is that I just think it's so beautiful that the church, the global church, is actually the global church. Mm. <laughs> it is not stuck in America. It's not stuck in any kind of political allegiance, although in some places it might be. But the global church um, is is active and moving and um, beautiful. And so I think that gives me a lot of hope. I've heard a statistic that right now the average Christian, so like if an alien came from outer space and said, show me the average Christian, that person would be a Nigerian woman. Hmm. Wow. Which I just think that's amazing. And so the center has shifted. It shifted a long time ago, but I think America, the West is just kind of starting to grapple with what that actually means. And if American Christians or other Western Christians can humbly accept the reality that the average person who shares your faith is a Nigerian woman. If we can accept that rather than trying to crush it or dominate it, I think there's so much potential for fresh hope, fresh winds, new lessons, new ways of learning how to be. If we can learn, if we're willing to put ourselves in that position of being a learner Mm -hmm. from somebody like that. Um, So that's like my, my big picture hope. I think as an American, I, I think it's good, even though it's really painful, but it's good that we're finally starting to unearth some of the junk that has been so broken, some of the dead mm. bones in our mm. closets, you know, that we just need to get out. And so it's hard and painful, but I think that, I think there's some hope there. I'm not hopeless about it. I think that Jesus is um, big enough and powerful enough to help people walk through that. Mm. Um, and then on just a, a personal level, um, I, I'm a little bit, I, I think I mentioned I'm nervous about my book coming out because I'm not sure how it will be received, um, mm. by American Christians, but I also, I'm, I'm hopeful for that. And one of the things in, specifically about it that makes me excited is that it is the story of an American white Christian woman wrestling with faith as a Christian in the Horn of Africa. But I asked a Somali Muslim man if he would write the foreword. And he agreed. His name is Abdi Noor Iftin, and he's also written a really great book called Call Me American. Um, so he wrote the foreword. And so I feel like with the actual physical product of my book, he and I together are modeling what I want to communicate to the world of, yeah, we don't agree. We're not the same, but we can work together. We can produce something beautiful and we can have a conversation and, um, and participate in making a better world. So those are three things that that make me hopeful. Mm. Wow. I'm suddenly hopeful. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we're not actually quite done. We actually want to ask you some rapid fire questions that 
we didn't tell you about ahead of time. So we're just going to ask them and then you just, um, you just say what comes to mind first and they're just going to be fun. So no pressure, but just, uh, just fun and lighthearted. So are you ready? Okay. Okay. (laughs) All right. First question. What's something about living in the United States that you really just don't miss? Oh my gosh. Like everything. (laughs) That's not true. That's not true. But I really don't miss politics. Mm. Uh, fair yeah especially after the last four four years you you've been spared a, a lot of That's, a lot of angst yeah. yep <laughs> okay so. i've been spared but that was not a lighthearted answer so go ahead <laughs> try and try another one i'm very bad at um, for the moment answers. no you're good so besides kind of learning how to use the restroom uh afresh what what about moving away from america has been the hardest thing for you to adjust to I have really missed my family, my sisters, my parents, and my brother. Mm. Um, so raising kids around family, that's something that's been hard to adjust to. And the heat in Djibouti, I'm from Minnesota. Minnesota <laughs> is very cold and snowy. Djibouti is one of the hottest countries on the planet. And so that's been oofta, oof, as we say in Minnesota. We say oofta. <laughs> that means, wow, it's a lot. <laughs> That's awesome. I actually lived in Minnesota a couple of times. Um, so I know what you're talking about, about the cold. It is very cold there. Mm. Um, so what is the coolest or place you've been to or maybe your favorite place that you've been to? One of the coolest places in Djibouti, I'll be specific, is the Salt Lake. And it is the lowest point in Africa. And it's a salt lake more densely salinated than the Dead Sea. And so you go there and it's this white lake surrounded by black volcanic rock. And then you just swim in this thing and you're floating and the sky is blue. It's just really stunning and unique. Mm -hmm. So that's really cool. Mm -hmm. And the other place I'll give you two is under the water in Djibouti. It has just incredible snorkeling. Every winter whale sharks come through. And so one of our Christmas traditions is to go camping at the beach and swim with whale sharks. Wow. Um, so under the water is really just my my whole family would say that's one of their favorite places. Mm. The wow! So most Americans think that lions and elephants and zebras just roam freely down the road uh, all over Africa. <laughs> have you even? They even do, they yeah. Do. Okay. Well, so how many how many lions have you seen since you've been there? <laughs> uh, zero. Yeah, zero. <laughs> When we first landed in Africa, we actually flew to Nairobi, Kenya, first thing. My kids were two and a half. We landed in the airport. My son had been hearing about Africa from other Americans. He looked around inside the airport and he said, there's no giraffes. This is the wrong Africa. <laughs> hey, hey, I will say, I will say that I've flown in and out of Nairobi and I did actually see a zebra at the Nairobi International Airport. So I don't know if he had just gotten lost awesome. or if he had drifted <laughs> off the range. But as I was checking in through security, I could see a zebra right outside. So, I mean, you know, that was kind of cool. That's awesome. In Kenya, yes, for sure in Kenya. That's awesome. That's crazy. All right, last question. Which is harder, running a marathon or writing a book? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Running a marathon? Except for that it's over in, I won't even say because I'm so slow. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe running a marathon, especially the one in which I play second. I was vomiting the whole time. It was a total disaster. I did it. 
I placed second because there were only three women and the third one didn't finish. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That is awesome. That's great. Well, hey, Rachel, this has been a lot of fun, uh, very enlightening uh, and also convicting as it relates to how we see our Muslim brothers and sisters throughout the world. So for anyone who's interested in diving in a little bit deeper, uh, where can they find your book and, and maybe how can they learn a little bit more about you as well? So my book is available at all the book places. Um, my publisher's Plow, so you can find it on their website as well. My website is my name, Rachel Pye Jones, and Pye has an H on the end. And I also have a Substack. So if someone wanted to search me on Substack, always using my name, I'm on all the social medias with the same name, Rachel Pye Jones. Awesome. And we'll make sure to link to everything in the show notes as well for anyone who wants to find them all in one place. So thank you so much, Rachel. We have really enjoyed talking to you and hearing your perspective and learning about your crazy experiences. Yeah, this has been so fun. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for your good questions. If you want to be graciously challenged in how you perceive others of other faiths and backgrounds, her book is a must read. You can head to holyheretics.org for the link to that, as well as the other show notes. And coming up next week, we are talking to Sheila Gregoire, who is the author of a brand new book called The Great Sex Rescue. And let me tell you, oh my word, when we chatted with her about doing the interview, I was blown away by what she uncovered about what the evangelical church teaches about sex and marriage and how those teachings have impacted women for generations. It will be a must listen. So if you haven't yet, go ahead and hit that subscribe button right now so you don't miss it. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society. Music is by Faith and Foxholes and sound engineering is by Joshua Mudge. 